This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. All right, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Now, I want you to imagine the unimaginable. Imagine as a young man, you get to go all over the world, some of the most unique places in the world that most people your age can't even find on a map. And then imagine that while you're still a teenager, your father, who has a pretty interesting life himself, dies. And imagine thinking that you might be responsible. Think of the burden that that might place on the shoulders of a young man. And then just think of the mystery and the weight of that mystery on the rest of your life. Well, somebody that does not have to imagine that is our next guest. Edward Sedell is an attorney, a financial fraud guru, and an author whose latest book is absolutely fascinating. It's called Buried Beneath a Tree in Africa, The Journey to Investigate the Murder of My Father in Uganda by Edie Amin. Uh, Ted Sedell, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Before we get started with this um, mystery that you're in the process of trying to solve, Give us a little background on your father. I know that he was a sociologist, but apparently he was also moonlighting, doing some work for the CIA. Who was your dad and what did he do for the CIA exactly? Well, my father was um, uh, appeared to be a college professor. He taught sociology um, at Makureri University in Kampala, Uganda. Uh, and he was doing research into care of the elderly in African traditional societies. So he would go out from the university into the remote regions of Africa and interview people about taking care of the elderly. And what he discovered is that most of the care of the elderly was being provided by missionaries that in, in traditional societies, uh, the elderly are just sort of left to die. But with the uh, coming of the missionaries, um, there were old age homes being created. So he developed this informal intelligence network of missionaries around uh, Uganda, out in the remote regions of Uganda, which he also used for his work with the CIA. He was also involved with the CIA. And that was ultimately why he was killed because of he was investigating a massacre committed by Idi Amin in 1971, uh, a few months after Amin had seized power in a coup. Uh, so at the time, Amin took power in January 1971. America, Britain, uh, the rest of the world thought this was a great thing because the 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 country was sort of heading towards socialism and Amin promised that wasn't going to happen under his watch. 
But then within six months, by June, there were rumors circulating that Amin was not such a good guy and that he was, in fact, uh, killing uh, tens of thousands of people uh, out in remote parts of the country. And that's what my father went to investigate. Interesting. Now, uh, tell folks a little bit about your upbringing. Where did you live as a child? I alluded to the fact that you lived in some interesting locales that uh, I've certainly never visited. Tell us where you traveled as a child. Well, I was born in Trinidad, uh, and then we traveled to Peru, Venezuela, Egypt, Panama. We were in Panama for the uh, when the Panamanians were were looking to take over the Canal Zone. It was an American territory at the time in the 60s, but then there were riots. And so and that was another time my father disappeared there for a few days during and reappeared, uh, but unharmed. But so we traveled uh, throughout uh, many troubled parts of the world, Egypt, uh, um, Panama um, and developing parts of the world like like Trinidad, Peru, and uh, Venezuela. What, what was that like as a child? Is that fun? Is it exhilarating? Is it exhausting? Uh, what's that like to go to all these different places as a child? Or, or did you not know anything different? You just thought it was normal? Well, what, it, what it's like, as you can imagine, Frank, is you're moving a lot. And as a kid, you don't want to be moving a lot, right? You want to stay with your friends and where you're comfortable. So um, it w- there was a lot of moving every few years and um, exposure to different peoples, different cultures, language issues. Um, so it was difficult. Um, and I didn't really, you know, I wanted what your average American kid had, you know, to go to the same primary school, high sure. school, whatever, and, you know, stick with your friends, live in the same house, whatever. We didn't do that. Uh, but as I explained in the book, by the time we went to Africa, I was 14 when we went to Africa. We, My dad disappeared when I was 17. By the time I was 17, I had begun to realize that this world that my father had had brought me up in was really pretty amazing. And uh, you know, it was full of adventure, um, and it was very unique. So by the time he was, he disappeared because he disappeared, and it wasn't until several years later that we found out what happened to him. Mm. But uh, by the time he disappeared, which was right after my seventeenth birthday, I I had uh, come to the conclusion that I was living the best life uh, imaginable uh, with life and adventure. My father had had. Uh, um, sketched out for me. When your father did pass away, what did you learn about his death at the time? What were you told? How did you learn it? Well, I was uh, actually, I just left Africa. I was in Norway in a, uh, in the fjord re- region, staying in a little uh, cottage with my Norwegian girlfriend and her family and a uh, postman came on a bicycle, rang the bell and uh, came, rode up to the house. He said, I have a telegram. And the telegram said, uh, basically my father had uh, disappeared. Stay where you are. Basically that's what the the messages said. And that's all I knew for uh, a few weeks. Then I went to the American embassy in Oslo 
and they uh, were persuaded uh, to to send a telegram to Uganda from Norway asking what happened to the father of this American who was, you know, stranded American kid. Uh, wasn't easy to talk them into doing it. They first told me that they had no obligation to do anything for me. And then I launched into a speech about the rights of American citizens, and they had a duty to investigate when one of their citizens has gone missing. And I write in the book that that was the moment when, without knowing it, I made the decision to someday become a lawyer uh, because, because I persuaded them <laughs> with that uh, impassioned speech to go ahead and send the telegram. And the telegram said he had disappeared uh, in a uh, 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 combat area. And given the passage of time, which was only a few days at that time, it was unlikely they were still alive. Oof. So that would, and then it took two years from that to actually get Idi Amin and the government of Uganda to admit that they were responsible for the killing. At, the, at that point, even when uh, Amin had uh, admitted that they were responsible for your father's killing, did you know where your father's remains were? No, no. There was a there was a courageous judge who conducted what was called a commission of inquiry in Uganda request that was established by Idi Amin. So here you have the president of a country, Idi Amin, asking the judiciary to investigate a murder he had himself committed. The judge, in the end, had to flee the country before he issued his, his opinion. He fled the country in the trunk of a ambassador's car. But um, so this judge was under tremendous pressure and Amin was intimidating witnesses, killing witnesses, doing everything he could to slow down this process. In the end, the judge concluded that they, that my father and another man, Nicholas Stroh, were in fact dead. Those were his words. But, and were, were, were killed at this military barracks. But who did it, how they died, why they were killed, he said he didn't know, which wasn't true. But in order to write an opinion that the president, he couldn't point the finger directly at the president or the fact that the president was actually there at the time, but he issued an opinion that said they're dead and the Uganda government is responsible. That's all I knew. And, and by the way, as you may imagine, or your listeners can imagine, when I came back to the United States, since my father's body hadn't been found, he couldn't be declared dead. His social security couldn't pay. His probe, his will couldn't be probated. His life insurance wouldn't, wouldn't pay. So for the next two years, I was, a you know, orphaned and penniless. I had no money, no access. I had relatives who helped out, but none of his estate or benefits could be paid because he had not been declared wow. dead. Jeez, unbelievable. I, I, what a nightmare. I can't imagine. So why, if people are just tuning in, by the way, we're talking with uh, Ted Sedell. His newest book is Buried Beneath a Tree in Africa, The Journey to Investigate the Murder of My Father in Uganda by Edie Amin. Why did you believe that you were partially responsible for your father's death? Well, because I had left the week before. 
uh-huh. had I, you know, I'm 17 years old and, you know, as I explained in the book, was it reasonable to think that I could have prevented my father's death? Of course not. I mean, uh, you know, there's just no way I could have. But that was the the real guilt was um, had I, you know, we lived together there for several years, just he and I, he was a single dad. Um, and I felt that, and I traveled extensively through throughout Uganda and uh, had many misadventures, you know, lots of dangerous situations that, that turned out to be fine. But I thought, basically, I thought that uh, had I been there, I could have done something. And really, what could I have done? Nothing. You know, there's what could I have done to stop? My father was investigating the brutal murder of 500 soldiers, Ugandan army soldiers by Idi Amin, a cleansing of this tribe from the army. They were all, all 500 of these soldiers were beaten to death. Not a single shot was fired, not a knife. They were all just beaten and their bodies were left. And that's what my father discovered when he arrived was 500 badly beaten dead bodies that had been, you know, hadn't been buried in uh, several weeks since the killings. And so what could I have done to stop that? Nothing. But I think, you know, you feel the book is really a, sure. a, a father son story. As a son, I think you feel an obligation to uh, know what happened to your father and to bring him home if you can. And that's what I tried to do was to find his remains and, and bring it home. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So uh, did, tell me about your decision to reinvestigate this case again. What brought this about? Clearly, it had been many years since your father's death. I'm sure you'd been very busy with a lot of the things that you were doing. Why not let sleeping dogs lie? Why make the decision to look into this again? Well, he was he disappeared in 1971. Uh I then went to law school in 1980, 1980. I started doing um, Freedom of Information Act requests from the CIA and the State Department. Those documents came trickling through to me in the in the 1980s. I got a lot of documents. Um, and then, you know, I grew and matured and and I started really getting into forensic work, which is what my what I'm the leading expert in is financial forensics. Mm -hmm. But so by 1997, I had decided I wanted to go back to figure out what had happened and that I was old enough and successful enough that I could get cooperation. And I did, I got cooperation from the CIA, from the state department, from uh, most importantly, from the Ugandan military, the uh, general Muntu, who is head of the Uganda people's armed forces. Uh, I met him. I was introduced to him once I flew to Uganda. Uh, 
by the CIA. And he agreed to take me to uh, the place where they'd been killed and to meet the key witnesses from 1971. Uh, everybody, I got, I, in the opening chapter of the book, I go into uh, a death row prison cell to meet the man who killed my father, um, who directly was involved, along with, I mean, so that's, that was, I was able to meet uh, the local commander who was responsible for the killings. Uh, of course, he didn't admit it to me, but, but the army set all that up for me. Um, so it's one of the things I say in this book is I, I think we all have personal journeys that we're destined to make. And um, when, when you go on, in my experience, when you go on that personal journey, you may very well find yourself getting helped by, by strangers even. I call it, you'll feel as if you're floating on a sea of helping hands. People came out to help me that I never anticipated. People in the State Department officials in the U.S. before I left, former ambassadors before I left, and then people in, at the Americans in Uganda, at the embassy and the CIA, and then Ugandan military people. They, I, I tell the story that I'm a, I'm a runner. I've been running for decades now, you know, 30 miles a week. When I was in Uganda, I wasn't left alone for a minute. Even when I went jogging along the killing fields, I had a military escort. Wow. Gee, hey, uh, what's been the reaction from the current Ugandan president? It sounds like a lot of the other entities within the military and elsewhere have been pretty supportive of what you're trying to do. Has the current president said anything? Well, I actually reached out to the current president to write a forward for the book. Um, uh, Yoweri Museveni is his name. He's been president for the last 30 years. Um you could call him a dictator if you want, but he, he, he's been the president for the last 30 years. But I asked him through his ambassador, would he write a short introduction forward to the book? Uh, and after months of maybe, maybe, by God, he delivered one hell of a forward to the book where he said that uh, it's in the book uh, where he said that uh, he was going to reopen the investigation into my father's death and how my father had been a friend of Uganda who had tried to help raise awareness that Idi Amin was a savage butcher who would go on to kill half a million people. So the president uh, last month uh, wrote this forward saying that he was going to reopen the investigation and that he hoped the, in, the, the, the journey described in my book and reopening the investigation would cause millions of Ugandan people who have grief from this time to talk about it, write about it. Because uh, they haven't, since the 70s, really uh, had this, whatever, period of mourning for all the people. If he killed half, if Idi Amin killed half a million people, each of those people had parents, brothers, sisters, sure. So that, that's millions of lives that were impacted. And they've not had what, like in South Africa, they had truth and reconciliation councils after the fall of apartheid. They've not had that in Uganda, this sort of national healing. And that's what he wrote in his foreword. Uh, I was very pleasantly surprised with what he wrote. 
Well, why? Ha- I mean, if he's the president and a pretty powerful president, why haven't they moved forward with some sort of national healing and reconciliation commission? Wouldn't he be the guy to start that process? That's a great question. When I went over there in 1997, I said to the president, Muntu, I mean, General Muntu, I said, has there been any kind, this is 1997, has there been any kind of truth and reconciliation, any investigation of, of atrocities committed during the Amin years? He said, no, it's never happened. Well, just recently, I discovered that's not true. Actually, in 1986, when the current president of Uganda came into power, he started a, uh, a series of uh, investigations into human rights abuses under the Amin years. There's an 18 volume set that was just put online by a University of Michigan professor last year for the first time that uh, Ugandan people have never seen it. So why did the president of Uganda commission this, this in these uh, inquiries into human rights abuses from 1986 to 1995 or so that was for that period and then never publish it. I don't have the answer for that, but I do now know that there were, there's an 18 volume set out there already online. You can at the university of Michigan, uh, why he went and there were, I think 650 victims interviewed. Uh, but at the end of the day, after years of investigating human rights abuses, the current president, for some reason, did not make those findings public until wow. now they're finally starting to be public. And that's another thing he committed to do was to make some of these archives available for the first time that may have the answer to who killed my father, how, when wow. and why. Uh, as of now, at this point, do you know where your father's remains are? Well, I when when I was there, I witnessed took me to a field and said, "Dig here, you will find them." And we dug, and we dug, but we didn't find them. Um, so, do I know the area the remains are? I think so. Uh, do I know exactly where the remains are? No, and I have not been able to find them, Mm. but there are, you know, technologies available. And and I talked in the book about how when I flew to Uganda in 1997 to reopen this investigation on my own in 1997, uh, I didn't dream of digging for his remains. You know, that was just way beyond my uh, imagination. Next thing I knew, I was digging for the remains and I was, you know, the, the army and I were talking about what is, you know, how long do dead bodies or how long are dead bodies preserved under the soil conditions here in Uganda? Right. Answer, 25 years or more is, is possible. And um, what do you do when you find the missing remains of a, there's, believe it or not, protocols you have to follow. The embassies have to be notified to bring an American's body back to the United States. There are, you know, health things, certificates you have to get that he didn't, the person didn't die of a communicable disease. 
when you get into investigating murder, particularly of, of someone you love, there's a lot of gruesome learning you have to do. Most of us, fortunately, don't have to do that. I did. I had to learn how long, how quickly does a body just decompose? You know, how do you move the remains across international borders? All of these questions that each more frightening than the last, I had to go down that rabbit hole, uh, but we were not able to, at that time, find the remains. As of now, and again, we're talking with Ted Sedell. His book is Buried Beneath a Tree in Africa. As of now, what are the next steps in your research, your investigation? What happens next in this whole thing? Well, that's a great question, and there's three next steps. One is, what type of investigation will the president of Uganda actually do? He's committed to doing one. And I think uh, my friends over at the New York Post are eager to ensure that he follows through on that promise. The next thing is uh, the archives. Um, There may be archival um, pictures or video or documents that answer the question. And here's the, uh, the third leg of this is it's been over 50 years now. When I originally requested under the Freedom of Information Act, documents from the CIA and the State Department, many of them were denied for national security reasons. Many were denied uh, for national security purposes. After 50 years, the, the, you know, the, 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 the security clearance or the security level ratchets down. So what was, I believe, so what was top secret 50 years ago is now not top secret anymore. So I would, I, one of the things I intend to do is to do a new Freedom of Information Act request from the State Department and the CIA to see what additional documents. I know the answer, people know exactly what happened because the CIA, Israeli intelligence, and the uh, embassy all were on at the scene of the crime within the first week. They know what happened. Uh, And the bodies were not, if there were bodies, were not disposed of at that time. So I believe that there are probably pictures of the bodies somewhere deeply uh, buried and classified. The document buried, not the bodies, but but deeply buried. It's somewhere in Langley, possibly. There are Mm. pictures of the bodies and there's memo. I don't need to someone to come forward to tell me what happened. I think the documents explaining what happened exist. Uh, I'm sure they do. I'm absolutely certain they do. And so uh, that's what I'm hoping can come out um, from either Ugandan sources or American sources. We can solve this, this murder. We can solve this mystery. Well, um, I, I certainly I certainly hope you do. Best of luck. And uh, thanks for all the great work you've done on, on this already, because it sounds like you're going to bring a lot of healing to a lot of the families that uh, had their lives shattered by uh, Edie Amin's rampage here. Uh, best of luck, Ted Sedell. I hope people check out the book. It's called Buried Beneath a Tree in Africa. Thank you. Thank you. If people want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.